In the Ring with Eusebius Makaiser. Eusebius Makaiser. Welcome to another special edition of In the Ring with Eusebius Makaiser. It is the morning after Jacob Zuma was finally committed to prison, and that comes a whole three days after the five days had expired when he was expected voluntarily to hand himself over to correctional services. But be that as it may, the police did manage to get him into custody. And as you are listening to this podcast, we are now in the unprecedented reality that a former president of Democratic South Africa, President Jacob Zuma, finds himself behind bars. Who would have thought for more than 10 years the corruption trial has been evaded by all sorts of technicalities? And we've all been wondering whether he would eventually face the music for corruption and if the NPA is to be believed that he faces a strong case against him, that he might well eventually be found guilty of that, and that that would have been the reason for him to end up behind bars. But as legal and political histories go, there are curveballs, there are events that are unpredictable, and here we are, Jacob Zuma having been found guilty of something completely different, contempt of court, which is rare by the way, and what's even more rare is that if you are found guilty, that you should be sentenced to an unsuspended amount of time in jail. But the reason why the court, of course, came to this conclusion is that they reckoned that his unique attack on the judiciary was such that it justified imposing this particular fine. And if you want, not quite fine, imprisonment as such, and if you want to catch up on exactly what the legal details were behind the reasoning for sentencing him to jail, two out of my last three or four podcasts managed to focus in quite a bit of detail on the specificity of the legal case that landed him in jail, as well as evaluating his strategy. But what I wanted to do in this much shorter reflection is to wear my hat as a political analyst and to think through what some of the lessons are for us as a country and indeed for the international community that can be learned from the imprisonment of Jacob Zuma. And I have thematically decided to group it into five different lessons or reflections and each of these I would like to specify and then to just unravel it a little bit. The first lesson I think that is critically important is that the rule of law can take root. I don't say that lightly because the rule of law is one of those phrases that roll off the tongues of political science students and legal students and scholars and uh, practicing attorneys and advocates. But what does it really mean materially to take seriously the rule of law? It means many things. And among the many things that the rule of law means and encompasses is that every single person, every single citizen must be treated equally before the law. It also means that the law must be respected in your society and that your behavior must be lawful at all times. In our country, where the constitution is the most important, indeed the supreme law that governs all other sources of law, it is particularly important that the Constitution be respected because it is the foundation upon which the constitutional democracy that we signed up for in 1994 is founded. So if you don't respect the rule of law, if the rule of law is not alive and well in your country, 
then really you are a constitutional democracy only by name, but not by behavior. And I think what's really, really, really important as a first lesson that needs to be learned from the imprisonment of Jacob Zuma is that the rule of law can take root in society. Obviously, you've got to be vigilant. You have to continuously work at entrenching the rule of law. There's no point in being inconsistent. Inconsistency itself, in terms of how you treat people, where lots of them have got prima facie cases against them of wrongdoing, that too will determine the legitimacy of your legal system. Justice must be seen to be done, which includes equal treatment of every single citizen in that society. And I qualify that in that way by means of suggesting that Jacob Zuma is not the only person who routinely thinks that he is above and beyond the law. And so the work continues to be done. He's not the first nor the last citizen in publicly elected positions or privately held positions that need to have the law come down hard on them for not respecting the authority of the judiciary and the laws of the land. So the rule of law is something you can't take for granted. However, I do think it is important that we hit the pause button and recognize that the rule of law doesn't have to be alien to us as South Africans. And having found him guilty of contempt of court, having sentenced him, and having peacefully managed to get him to be in jail is a really important reason for us to be proud of ourselves as a constitutional democracy where rule-bound behavior can be insisted upon. So that's the first lesson. The rule of law can take root here in South Africa. The second, I think, is really interesting, that the dystopian narratives about post-colonial societies need not be inevitable. This is something I've engaged a couple of my mates on, including some journalist friends of mine who are based in London and in the USA. And we were talking about what some of the wider political significance is of this moment that South Africa is living through. And I thought that's a really important question to ask because we've been bogged down, even publicly, in the minutiae of the legal case And we haven't really spoken about the historical political significance of what we are living through right now. And I want to to do that. And I want to suggest then that a second lesson to be learned or a reflection to be explored is that dystopia isn't inevitable when it comes to post-colonial histories. What do I mean by that in simple terms? Many countries around our region, once they had freedom from the colonialists after the Second World War, often did well initially. Zimbabwe is a good example. And yet, after about 15, 20 years of political freedom, very often the liberation movements start to demonstrate neo-colonial behavior. Many politicians start mimicking the colonial masters that had left our shores, and then citizens are often as bad off as they were under the colonial masters. And so there are asset tests to see whether a society can really manage to generate levels of freedom that are conducive 
to substantive equality, justice, and opportunities for all to develop our individual potentials in ways in which we couldn't during colonialism, and in our case, colonialism and apartheid. So what are those key tests that post-colonial societies often face? The most obvious one is whether or not the first governments after independence can let go of political power when eventually they get defeated at the polls. And that isn't always the case. Sometimes you find politicians become so addicted to political power that they don't want to let go of it. They rig elections, they become violent, they weaponize the state machinery and their monopoly on violence as an incumbent government to crack down on the opposition. Now, in South Africa, we haven't yet faced that test because the ANC remains a very powerful social force in our society. And electorally, they also have the gift of weak opposition. But I would argue that there's a second test of whether or not a post-colonial era can indeed be one that leads to improved welfare for the citizens of a society that is a nascent democratic society. And that second test is more subtle than will you let go if you are defeated at the polls? And the second test is, how are you getting on in building democratic institutions? And what is the level of political accountability in your society? And examples of those include the quality of policing, the quality of the judiciary, a free press, for example. And those are the kind of institutions and democratic norms and values that you have to constantly evaluate and be vigilant about to try and see whether they're still alive and well or whether they are slowly being eroded. And look out for those moments because you don't just wake up one day and your society is anti-democratic. It happens very slowly, and if you miss those markers, you might miss opportunities to nip it in the bud early on. Now, what I like about the fact that Jacob Zuma has been found guilty and peacefully taken into custody is that it is is an example that dystopia narratives are not inevitable, that when it comes to certain institutions like the judiciary being respected, that it's possible for us to build those norms and to safeguard those norms and to buck the trend that says it is inevitable that an African country will eventually backslide after getting independence from a colonial master. And that for me is the second lesson. Dystopia narratives do not have to be inevitable and that it is up to us in terms of how we exercise our collective agencies, what happens to our story. We are the authors of our own story, and there's nothing inevitable about how the post-1994 narrative must play out. And this example underscores that. Now again, obviously I'm not being naive. There's a lot of work we need to do. Um, No one has yet been jailed for state capture, for example, There's a lot of accountability that still needs to happen. I think accountability is not sufficiently strong, sufficiently alive in South Africa. And we need a bigger conversation about what accountability requires and how we will go about entrenching accountability. Jacob Zuma spending a couple of months in prison does not constitute deep 
overall societal accountability. But at the same time, we should not be glib about how important the Jacob Zuma lesson is that we are capable as a society to insist on accountability and bucking the trend of dystopian narratives about the region. The third lesson is very simple, but I think one which we should make a great deal out of. Politicians are not special. That's it. I'll repeat it. Politicians are not special. You know, we sometimes treat politicians as if they do us a favor by running for political office. We do this the world over. We revere them. We give them special titles. We think they demand respect in virtue of occupying office rather than having to earn our respect. And I think that's wrong-headed. And I think the more across the world, the more we get politicians to understand that they serve at our behest, the more likely we are to get servant leaders rather than egomaniacs running for office. And so for me, the third lesson is, very simply, that politicians are not special. The fourth one is one that I've slightly alluded to when I spoke about dystopian narratives not being inevitable, which was lesson number two. But I wanted to classify this as a separate fourth lesson because I think it is that important such that we need to actually label it as a distinct lesson from the lesson that says, which was lesson two, dystopian narratives are not inevitable. And so the fourth lesson that I want to label as one that we can take out of this moment that we are living through is that we can and we are and we should make accountability a habit. I'll say it again. We can, we are, and we must make accountability a habit. And that requires us as citizens and as civil society to insist on holding people who hold power, not necessarily only public figures, by the way, in the form of politicians, but also private interests, because one can have power in many different ways, but Jacob Zuma is the example of the day. We have to make sure that society is in the habit of insisting on accountability. And the way you form habits, we all know how we form habits. We all have habits in each of our lives, good habits, bad habits, by doing something over and over and over and over again. It's got to become part of our daily vocabulary, our daily lives, that we hold people who exercise power accountable. And so for me, the fourth lesson that we must learn in this moment is that accountability must become habit. And then lastly, the last lesson that I think we need to learn is one for political parties and not so much for us as citizens. Remember, the fourth lesson was for us as civil society and especially wearing our hats as citizens. We, in relation to those who are in public office, need to insist upon accountability. But my last lesson is one where I want to address you if you are in office you must be listening closely to this one. Political parties must learn to be humble and to be responsive to the needs of society. I really hope that if you are a politician and you watch what happened to Jacob Zuma, that you will say to yourself, 
I better learn how to be humble as a public servant and as a political leader in office. Political humility is a key feature of effective, responsive, ethical, political leadership. And if you don't have the necessary humility to respect, for example, the authority of a court that has competent power over you and me and that can direct you to go and appear before a commission of inquiry, if you don't, then you are not being humble. You are being arrogant, which is the opposite of humility. And so I think the fifth and final lesson, not the final, but I wanted to, to, to keep it to five because we can take these five and chat about it over dinner, over lunch, on social media. So I've restricted myself to five lessons the morning after. The fifth lesson then is, to summarize it, political humility is important and political parties would do well to learn that and to be more responsive to the needs of society. So there you have it. Let me summarize it. Number one, the rule of law can take root in South Africa and in any society. Number two, dystopian narratives are not inevitable. We can be the authors of our own stories. Number three, politicians are not special. Number four, we must make accountability habit. And number five, political parties must be more responsive to the needs of society and one of the Quickest ways to do so is to learn the importance of political humility. In the ring with Eusebius Makaiser. Eusebius Makaiser.